You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 94. This week, we're looking into the so-called sharing economy, specifically at Uber, the ride-for-hire service that is about to have to deal with something new for the app-based world, labor organizing. We'll look into the new legislation that just passed in Seattle allowing drivers, independent contractors or not, to collectively bargain and talk to a driver about the organizing that won this victory. But first, the news. The ongoing tension between New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio seems to be good for something, at least. The two now appear to be engaged in a sort of bidding war as to who can raise wages to $15 an hour for the most people first. This is, as we have noted on this podcast previously, somewhat of a change for the governor, who previously opposed all plans, including a couple of Bill de Blasio's, for wage increases in the state. But this week, he announced that he'd be raising wages for employees in the State University of New York system to $15 an hour as part of what he's called a continued plan to get the entire state closer to 15 and lay the groundwork for a $15 minimum wage state law. While the SUNY system is in desperate need of new funding, this move might end up causing more tuition increases for students at SUNY because Cuomo's gifts often seem to have some hidden downside, but still it appears that the governor actually means what he says these days when it comes to 15. Not to be outdone, de Blasio then announced that city employees would have a minimum wage of $15 by 2018, a move that would include employees of outside organizations whose wages are paid by the city, such as daycare providers. De Blasio has also announced six weeks of paid family leave for city workers, a move that Cuomo now reportedly feels pressured to emulate. While the enmity between the mayor and the governor certainly hasn't been good for several of the mayor's priorities or, you know, passing a budget or anything else, really, it seems to at least be paying off for lower wage workers as a situation politically has clearly flipped to one where even formerly conservative Cuomo can't raise wages fast enough. Well, Columbia and new school students are starting the new semester with a spring in their step as both are headed to the National Labor Relations Board for a review of a potentially groundbreaking petition to reinstate their collective bargaining rights. This would be a big win for graduate students nationwide. It would allow them to form officially recognized unions and give them the right to collectively bargain a contract um, over wages, working conditions, etc. This is coming after years of uh, very strong organizing for union recognition uh, among graduate student workers at uh, dozens of campuses across the country. And um, as Columbia and New School students make their case before the five-member national board, they will be revisiting an issue that was uh, essentially squelched over a decade ago when Brown University students also petitioned for collective bargaining rights, and uh, they were rejected. So far, voluntary recognition, which is the alternative, um, has been successful in only one instance. That's with New York University. Um, the Columbia and New School students, too, had sought uh, voluntary recognition recognition, but they were unable to secure that um, with their respective administrations, and now uh, it has gone to litigation. So uh, the pending ruling could be a game changer. They wish it didn't have to come to this point, but um, this is what Lindsay Dayton, a student organizer at Columbia, had to say about how it got to this point and what she hopes will come of the ruling. 
It was exciting when they granted the review of the petition at the new school, but it's even more exciting that they're looking at ours um, with the new school because, you know, we have some different situations at Columbia. It's not super different from the new school, but we anticipated that Columbia would argue that it was really different. So I think it's great that they're going to review these petitions together. And, you know, we're pretty confident that the board, as it stands now, will restore our right to collective bargaining. But, you know, we're also very disappointed in Columbia's response, which has been to hire super expensive anti-labor lawyers to drag out this entire process and to, you know, not to recognize our union. And so I think for for all of us now, we're sort of seeing, um, especially because Columbia has been delaying and delaying and delaying, we're also sort of seeing the future of this kind of organizing and seeing that it's not just about organizing graduate workers or undergraduate workers. It's really about having a different vision for academia and building power on the ground so that the people who really run the university really contribute to its mission, you know, to educate and to to perform research, they're the ones who are determining what the university looks like and what its work looks like. I think that we're constantly changing. We're constantly learning. I mean, my own personal experience is that this has been a really transformative thing for Columbia. Just in terms of the graduate student community, I think everybody who's been involved, no matter how small their involvement or, or how much they might, you know, sort of say, oh, I didn't, I didn't really do much or whatever. I think having a union and knowing that we are a union has made all of the difference for how we think about our life here. And that was Lindsay Dayton of Columbia University, and they are organizing with United Auto Workers, uh, which is also the union that helped organize the NYU students. And their collective bargaining unit under their current petition would include both uh, graduate students and undergraduate workers, as well as research assistants. So um, it's uh, actually a pretty uh, wide scope for a collective bargaining unit in in this sector. And um, they prevail at the national level. That will probably lead to a cascade of other organizing victories at private university campuses nationwide. So uh, stay tuned and uh, we'll keep you posted. We often talk on Belabored, as Michelle just did, about the problems faced by non-tenured faculty in the higher education system, adjuncts and graduate student employees and student athletes who make little or nothing compared to their tenured colleagues. But these days, even tenured faculty aren't safe from cuts. The College of St. Rose, a private liberal arts school in Albany, New York, recently announced that it would be eliminating 23 tenured and tenure-track faculty positions, along with several programs, to try to stave off what it says is a massive deficit. The faculty have responded with protests, saying that the decision was made without faculty involvement and violates the principles of shared governance. In addition, they noted that while making cuts to faculty benefits and firing professors, the administration has added new executive administrative positions. All of this, says a group of faculty in the midst of a union drive on campus, amounts to a, quote, relentless executive administrative assault on tenure, academic freedom, and shared governance. The American Association of University Professors has announced an investigation, though the administration says that it will not participate. The faculty plan to continue their organizing drive and have gotten significant support from their students, who set up a petition online that gathered over a thousand signatures in just a short period of time. 
Meanwhile, in Illinois, at Wheaton College, an evangelical Christian university, a tenured professor of political science is being threatened with termination over an act of solidarity. Larisha Hawkins, the first tenured black professor at the college, decided to wear a hijab in solidarity with American Muslims facing an increase in hate crimes since the shootings in San Bernardino and the Paris attacks. Some of us might think that sounds like a very Christian thing to do, but apparently the Christian school disagrees with her theology, and because it is a religious university, argues that it has the right to fire her over statements like the one that she made, that Muslims, Christians, and Jews are all people of the book and worship the same God. The university has required her to submit a theological response to questions about her statement, but apparently not well enough to please them. In the past, she's also been in trouble for writing a paper about what Christians can learn from black liberation theology, which the provost said seemed to endorse a kind of Marxism. She is pushing back, supported by Arise Chicago Worker Center, and over 100 faith leaders, community leaders, alumni, and faculty joining her at a press conference this week. She said, when calling on one member to, over and above every other member of the campus community, answer for a Facebook post that was actually committed to living out the love of Christ and the principles of the statement of faith, no one is safe. If they're not safe on their Facebook page, they're not safe in the classroom. And that's the end of liberal arts. That's the end of Christian liberal arts. That's the end of the academy. I put these two together because while they might seem like two very different cases, it is worth pointing out that tenured faculty are also not safe from the working conditions that other, less protected workers on university campuses face, and that the dismantling of labor protections for some of the most privileged workers in the U.S. is a bad sign for everyone. It should also be an encouragement for tenured faculty who have not already stood up for the untenured faculty on their campuses to join in because, well, they're coming for you next. A group of workers at a slaughterhouse in a quiet town in Colorado have found themselves at the front line of a culture war in a workplace dispute over praying on the job. The workers are Muslims, and they have for years prayed at regular intervals throughout the day, per their usual religious tradition, five prayer sessions daily. Um, Their employer, Cargill, a beef processing plant, had arranged for uh, the workers to pray um, in a designated reflection room um, that's allowed for spiritual practices of all kinds at the workplace. And uh, the arrangement worked out fairly well for the community. These are mostly Somali refugee immigrants. And uh, they had been able to uh, work with this arrangement for several years. Um, There had been some occasional disputes over when exactly people should be uh, taking time out for prayer. People were using a combination of paid and unpaid break time. But generally, um, they were able to work out arrangements with the supervisors. But... Um, In the middle of last month, according to advocates for the workers, uh, the authorities or the supervisors at the plant uh, told workers, essentially, if you want to pray, go home. Uh, So the workers took this as a sign of a new sort of hostile shift in the attitude of the workplace towards what they uh, believe is both their right and as well as their spiritual duty. And uh, they are working with the Council on American Islamic Relations to work for a compromise and and to basically uh, show the supervisors and the management at Cargill that um, this is their right under the Constitution and that it is part of their uh, labor rights as well. Unfortunately, uh, they were not able to broker a compromise when they decided to stay off the job. Um, About 190 workers lost their jobs altogether as a result of this dispute in late December, and there's still 
still, uh, as of this recording on Wednesday, an impasse between the workers and the management. The management, for its part, says that the workers had missed work for three consecutive days and that left them liable to being dismissed. Um, the cargo workers are pushing back by saying that Cargill was violating their right to religious expression. And CARE believes that the lack of cultural understanding, if not outright ignorance, um, has been both leading to confusion on the part of everyone at the plant, as well as generally, you know, leading to more disruption than was actually necessary. Cargill originally argued that the workers should not be allowed to pray because they were allegedly uh, going to pray in groups. The workers deny this, but in any case, um, whatever disruption might have been caused by the workers going to pray in small groups of two or three, that has now been uh, massively expanded by the fact that um, over 180 workers essentially are no longer working at the plant because of this dispute. And just on background, I mean, this is not the first instance of anti-Muslim bias that the Somali refugee community has faced in Fort Morgan. Um, they have been engaged in an ongoing sort of struggle to work through issues of cultural integration and cultural clashing um, in this small Colorado town. And, um, you know, this is certainly a setback for the community and for uh, the workers, one of the area's major employers. Um, CARE hopes to resolve the issue soon. In the meantime, they're working to file unemployment claims for them and to get them reinstated as soon as possible. And more broadly for the community as a whole, CARE spokesperson Jelani Hussein says that in his talks with local workers, um, he's heard, quote, concerns that there could be potentially a backlash from what's been happening, close quote, um, in the wider sort of political atmosphere with all this raging Islamophobia. And uh, it's hard not to read maybe an element of that from this abrupt emergence of hostility in the workplace. So it's a good time to remember to be vigilant and uh, to recognize that religious rights can definitely affect one's experience in the workplace. The rideshare app Uber is known for its aggressive and disruptive tactics whenever it tries to move into a city or town and take over the local taxi cab market. But some drivers in Seattle, including taxi cab drivers and Uber drivers themselves primarily, have uh, gotten organized and they've managed to form a formidable challenge to Uber through the legislature. They have gotten a new law passed by the city council that would basically allow uh, Uber Uber drivers to organize unions and collectively bargain. That would be a big step for uh, rideshare drivers and could set a precedent across the country and could potentially severely disrupt Uber's organizing model. We're speaking with Rebecca Smith of National Employment Law Project, who has been tracking Uber as well as other big names in the sharing economy and uh, talking about the role of labor rights and different avenues that workers can take to assert their rights against the gig economy hegemony. And we'll also hear from Takele Gobena. He is one of the lead organizers of the App-Based Drivers Association, the group that's behind the Seattle bill. So I, I have some somewhat of a grasp of what's going on in Washington. I was just wondering if you could say a few words about like how this squares with you know the proposals that you had for the on-demand economy that you put out earlier. How would this 
potentially legally conflict um, with some of the prevailing laws? And are there statutory ways or um, other like regulatory ways to kind of get get around some of those obstacles? Well, Seattle is the first city to provide this uh, route to organizing for uh, workers who are exempt from the National Labor Relations Act, but it's not the first jurisdiction to um, address workers who are exempt from the National Labor Relations Act. So uh, I guess I'd say the Seattle ordinance is innovative and forward-thinking and just simply gives workers a voice, but it's not unprecedented. So that farm workers are excluded from the National Labor Relations Act, but California has a law that establishes a process for farm workers to engage in collective bargaining. And a number of states have processes for independent in-home care providers to organize and collectively bargain. And many states have uh, processes for public employees to collectively bargain, even though all those people are exempt from the National Labor Relations Act. Right. So what would be the potential legal argument from the other side that they would raise? Um, Because it it seems like it... (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're probably kind of uh, trying to think in a very chessboard-like way what they might try, but I assume that they would probably resort to some arguments that have been used before. Uber has fought uh, disability rights cases. It's fought workers' cases. It's fought city efforts to regulate, to impose reasonable regulation Um, It's hard to imagine the entire universe of claims that uh, a company like Uber would put forward. Um, I think we could expect this NLRA-based challenge, and given the precedents that I just mentioned, I think Seattle is in great shape. And and what about, um, it's sort of been floated around that they would try to bring some kind of antitrust claim to this um, because, like, the freelancers are, uh, like, I guess the idea is that, you know, these are contract workers and they can't combine in a way that interferes with trade. Right. So there's an exemption for antitrust for state action. And Washington state law could not be clearer local jurisdictions can regulate for hire transportation companies without incurring antitrust liability. Um, so the, the state law, and you can take a look at it, it's very, very clear, is RCW 46.72.001. Uh, and so it says right there um, that the state can basically do whatever it wants when it comes, or it is not governed by um, federal antitrust law? It says that local jurisdictions like Seattle can regulate for higher transportation without implicating antitrust laws. I see. Okay. And the federal antitrust laws 
uh, have an exemption where there is state action. Okay. Um, so there's like a, I guess there's harmony there between the federal and the state law. So I guess, uh, is that, was that always mm-hmm. there or is that something that was inserted with this legislation or the, the, the idea that was always no. there? Okay. Yeah, no, it's been around for some time and I don't know how many other states have that kind of provision or is, um, but it's, it's very clear. Okay. Um, and I guess going forward, how would this affect the potential legislative battles around the country? Um, because it is, in a sense, I mean, it would be solidifying their position as um, independent contractors, wouldn't it? In a sen- I mean, wouldn't the flip side of that be that they it may hinder the case that they're making that they're actual employees of Uber? Well, I think the... Uh, genius of this ordinance is that it calls the company's bluff. You know, essentially, the workers have said, if you want to treat us like independent contractors, then the city can allow us to collectively bargain as independent contractors. Time will tell whether there is a decision in the California case that these workers are employees under wage and hour law. It's it's certainly possible that a court would find their employees under wage and hour law and they would be independent contractors under the National Labor Relations Act. I see. So there, there wouldn't be a danger of a local ordinance that treats them as, say, either independent contractors or as wage and hour law, um, you know, coverage workers that, uh, that, that would potentially conflict with the NLRA? Yeah, there, there's as much potential um, for the two laws to exist in harmony as there is for them to conflict. The jury in California could decide that these workers are entitled to minimum wage at the same time that another court could decide they're independent contractors under the National Labor Relations Act, since different laws have different definitions. Mm-hmm. Okay. I kind of think the bottom line is that, you know, we are in a period of experimentation, um, and we're in a period where workers have. Um, incredible challenges just to ac- exercise their voice at work. So city-level initiatives in this period are welcome. Mm-hmm. And uh, besides which, I mean, I suppose even if they did not qualify for protections under minimum wage law, if they are able to form a union and collectively bargain, they could potentially set whatever baseline of wages or um, working standards that they that they could get in those negotiations, right? Right. That's the beauty of allowing workers to choose for themselves. Uh, they can decide what issues are most important and most immediate and reach agreement with the companies, as opposed to um, legislators or courts deciding which standards apply right that makes uh that makes over over often a very long period of debate and litigation and or litigation right right so i guess it's uh i mean it it's 
it finds the sweet spot that's sort of like the reversal of what Uber was trying to do, which was like trying to heap the worst of both worlds on drivers because so, they had all the responsibilities of employees and none of the advantages or protections, I guess. Right. The companies are trying very hard to have it both ways, to claim that they are not employers, but at the same time that workers can't bargain with them. Right, okay. And that's a position that we should all be very concerned about. And I suppose, I mean, this law is a direct response to that, because they're saying, like, we still think these protections apply, and we have the power to collectively bargain with you, like, as such, so... In reference to the the memo that you put out earlier... um, Stuff about, like, people being statutory employees, that, that, that would still be for federal law to determine, right? Well, workers could be statutory employees under any number of laws. So, you know, a city could amend its minimum wage ordinance to specify that businesses in the on-demand economy had, had to comply with minimum wage. A state could include on-demand businesses in its minimum wage or labor standards or workers' comp or unemployment insurance statutes. And certainly, the Congress could include these workers uh, in the definition of employee or simply by category for purposes of Social Security, anti-discrimination, any number of other laws. I guess this sort of relates to the broader debate right now over whether to um, create like a separate system of benefits and protections for gig workers or on-demand workers and whether or not to sort of try to tie things back to federal law and rein companies in that way. Um, Does NELP take any particular position. I know that, um, you know, EPI and some other more pro-labor groups have sort of bristled at the idea of creating like a separate system of protections or carving out some kind of like quasi 1099er category as opposed to just calling them one thing or another. Um, Can you comment on that? Sure. Introducing a third category would introduce more confusion and more litigation into the, uh, this system. Okay. Right. Yes. And I guess it would probably just uh, give Uber the upper hand because they'd be sort of the ones who would be coming up with the proposals for what they're prepared to give (laughs) the workers. Right. So. um, Right. Right. You, You could imagine all sorts of businesses racing to reclassify their workers downward um, in order to save money. That was Rebecca Smith of the National Employment Law Project. And now we're speaking with Takile Gobina of the App-Based Drivers Association. Can you tell us how the new bill that just passed in Seattle that would allow Uber drivers to organize will change your life as a driver? Um, Yes, we have been working about a year and a half to uh, make that happen. That legislation is going to give us a say to have a say in... uh, in, in, in an issue that matters on daily basis uh, for most of drivers who drive for Uber as well as for Lyft. Uh, because we have invested in this company a lot of money, we bought new cars, but the treatment we are getting from company is become from uh, worst to worst. So this legislation is going to give us a say, and through that say, it's going to change drivers' lives 
uh, our family's life as well as also going to improve uh, the service we provide for uh, riders. Can you talk about how you uh, went about organizing for the legislation and uh, what was the role of the App-Based Drivers Association that you are affiliated with and uh, did you make the case to the public that uh, Uber drivers and other cab drivers should be allowed to form unions? I've been involved in this organizing for more than two years now and it's initiated by Uber drivers because uh, most of drivers who drive for Uber, they switch it from the taxi because they hope that they make better living wage with Uber. It, of course, they did at the first time the Uber arrived in Seattle, but from day to day, that thing totally changed and they become earning less than the uh, taxi drivers earning. We organized ourselves, we approached the union, uh, and uh, uh, through that, we were able to deliver our message to our city council and they came to introduce this legislation and now we are here. How did the organization get um, started? The Abed Drivers Association, um, uh, in 2013, uh, Uber reduced the price and we talked to each other when we drive, so we came together and uh, asked the company to raise that issue and they were not interested to talk to us. They deactivated about uh, 55 uh, drivers right away. We started to organize ourselves and through the help of uh, uh, Union Local, uh, 117. We established a big driver's association here in Seattle last year, 2015. You know, I guess the next step would be to move towards uh, negotiating a contract. Do you have a sense of what that will look like for you and your fellow drivers? How will the negotiations go? Um, who will represent who? Um, I understand that someone will represent Uber and there will be someone representing the city and uh, the drivers will also be represented. So how, how will that play out exactly? As far as I know, we are not there yet to uh, negotiate with Uber at this time. But eventually, uh, when they abide by the law, we, uh, we, we're going to uh, come together. And that's what is saying our uh, by law. We're going to come together and uh, elect representatives from drivers. And that representative from drivers will also work with a unit that the Abbey Drivers Association members chosen. And with that, we will probably be able to bring our issue to the table and then uh, negotiate with the company. But there's one thing that I want to mention here. Uh, our main point is not to uh, increase the fare or riders. That's not why we, what we are asking. Uh, and also, uh, based on my experience and based on our intent, it's not going to be that issue even when we start negotiating. It's about fair treatment. It's about getting paid living wage. It's about having a say on the issue that matters to us because it's, it is this drivers who spend 16, 18 hours on the street. Yeah. And it's not only about a fair, it's about treatment also. Just to clarify one point, will the cab drivers and uh, the Uber drivers be negotiating together on the same side? Will you have the same representative or will you be electing different representatives? I don't think I'll be able to answer that question at this time, but that would be an issue that we will address after now once the uh, piece of legislation be, uh, abides on, on those companies. But I, I can't answer that question at this time. Because it's Uber... So a recent article argued that Uber would be 
a very easy company to turn into a workers' cooperative where the drivers would actually own the company, since Uber likes to say that all it does is provide you with an app. Would you be interested in forming something like that at some point? Uh, no, at this time, I don't have that idea. I also haven't heard any driver who is saying about uh, these issues. But what I can tell you is uh, if Uber continues treating drivers like this, either drivers are going to find another means or companies competing with Uber, either the drivers are going to. But uh, I don't think it's also good for the companies to uh, treat drivers in such a way. But even right now, uh, you don't see anyone interested to join Uber uh, in, 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 in as far as now, uh, because what we are getting paid is less than minimal wage workers at gas station at restaurant paid in Seattle. So nobody was interested to join this uh, business. They probably find another better job. How many drivers altogether are in the App-Based Drivers Association right now? I don't have that statistics right now, but I, I know more than 90, 95% that drivers support, but I can't give you a figure on how many of them are members at this time. That was Takele Gobina of Seattle, a driver for Uber who has been involved in organizing and the recent victory of a bill that would make it legal for those drivers to collectively bargain. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. It's everyone's favorite time. Arg! I wish I'd written that. And of course, it is the most wonderful time of the four-year period, presidential election time. And by most wonderful, I mean we all hate it. Candidates are out there on the campaign trail saying anything and everything that they think will get them elected, and I won't even start on Donald Trump. But one of the things that's most pernicious about campaign season is this perennial obsession with the middle class. Politicians talk about the middle class as if anyone and everyone is in it, and as if it's the only group of people worth talking about or pandering to. Those are two things that are kind of contradictory, but that doesn't seem to stop politicians much. So when frequent ARG recipient Bryce Covert took Hillary Clinton and by extension all candidates to task for their middle class pandering in the New York Times, I had to talk about it. Bryce's piece is titled, $250,000 a year is not middle class, and that's kind of the point. Candidates tend to use less than 250000 as some sort of metric for who is middle class, the people that they want on their side, because nobody really wants to be seen as siding with the rich. The only trouble is, as Bryce points out, people who make over $206,000 a year are actually the top 5% of Americans. They are actually pretty rich. The actual middle of the American wage spectrum, the median household income, is actually $53,657 a year. And that matters because when you're making policies for those people and vowing at the same time not to raise taxes on people who make nearly five times as much as they do, you're tying your hands pretty far. Bryce writes, In an era of deepening income inequality, those people in the top 5% who are being classified as middle class are pulling further away from the rest of us. Americans at the bottom or in the middle have experienced five years of falling or stagnating income. Those in the top 5% have generally seen their incomes increase. Between 1967 and 2014, median household income went up by 9400 while those 5%ers are now making $88,800 more, all adjusted for inflation. 
In addition, pledging not to raise taxes at all is kind of a mistake. For instance, I currently pay a couple hundred dollars a month for health insurance under the Affordable Care Act. If my taxes were to increase a small percentage in order to pay for universal health care, I'd be happy to make the exchange. It would still likely be much less than I am paying out of pocket to an insurance company. Likewise, for families paying out-of-pocket for daycare for their children, a small tax increase would make a world of difference if their daycare was suddenly free. But most importantly, I think Bryce underlines the point that this obsession with 250000 as some sort of middle-class barrier means that we continue to have a warped idea of what Americans actually make, what jobs they do, who they are, and what they need from their government. She concludes... Quote, over the last decade and a half, fewer and fewer Americans are identifying as middle class, and a growing share says it is working or lower class. Income inequality compresses many downward and lifts up the sliver already at the top. That shifting identity should relieve candidates of the sense that there is a political urgency in spouting the phrase middle class, and it demands a new framework, one that is honest about the class divisions in this country. My ARG pick is called Why Do Employers Still Routinely Drug Test Workers by Daniel Engber at Sleet. So with all the hoopla over legalizing pot, we'd think um, our workplaces would finally be catching up to the zeitgeist with the rollback of the war on drugs. But instead, at work, we seem to be hopelessly behind the times when it comes to thinking about drugs and how they impact our everyday work lives. So Engber details a massively antiquated practice that has stubbornly persisted in American office culture, the urinalysis test. He reports, quote, according to a recent survey of almost 70,000 working adults from across the United States, 48.2% said that their employers performed drug screenings of some kind. What I'd imagine was a relic of the D.A.R.E. generation, as out-of-date as scrambled metaphors for drug-induced neuropathy, um, has never really gone away. On the contrary, drug testing is still widespread, he writes. About 45 to 50 million workplace drug tests are taken annually across the country, and that creates a, quote, massive industry in biomedical HR. Overall, Engwer continues, uh, drug testing is at odds with simultaneous major cultural shifts in how drugs are perceived. So setting aside this implied puritanicalism, and stereotypes about the potential negative impact of drugs on workers, um, setting aside even the civil liberties concerns about invasive testing and uh, the fact that people's bodies are basically surveilled on a regular basis by their employers. He points out that the drug testing tradition only really dates back to the 1980s, and that came from when investigations of some high-profile incidents of workplace accidents in risky industries like aviation and uh, the Navy <laughs> revealed that dead crewmen and pilots had traces of marijuana in their systems. And from there, the panic over drugs on the job coincided with the war on drugs era, and out of all that came the drug testing hegemony that we have today. According to Engberg, drug testing was soon re imagined as a means of counteracting all sorts of social problems from inefficiency to moral rot. Later on, the hysteria grew as more investigations of deadly accidents seemed to link past drug use to incompetence or dangerous behavioral lapses. Um, perhaps the fact that just about everybody had a little marijuana in their system, whether or not they were doing a good job or a bad job, had something to do with it. The science, uh, Engber points out, is dubious at best. 
Laboratory studies show that acute drug use sometimes leads to clear impairment, and that's especially true in uh, incidents of things like accidents at work and poor on-the-job performance. But your analysis, he writes, still the most common form of drug testing doesn't tell you whether someone is getting high in the office or behind the wheel. It only tells you that he or she may have gotten high at some point in the last few days. So the employee puffs a joint in the evening as he watches TV, but is otherwise alert and conscientious on the job, would still be singled out for discipline or denied a position. Drug testing might screen for things like how willing you are to take drugs. It doesn't really say anything about your ability as a worker. It doesn't particularly say anything about your character. We have no idea, he writes, whether drug tests reliably increase productivity, reduce absenteeism, prevent blackmail, or otherwise improve the lot of most employees who take them. But more certain is the fact that drug testing functions as a real deterrent on taking drugs, that is, not any other real behavior at work. One weird twist of this system, however, is that drug testing can in some cases be an equalizer of sorts in a perverse kind of way. He writes that, States that have pro-drug testing workplace policies also tend to have higher levels of black employment. It's unclear if those two factors are linked, but Engber suspects that uh, what may be happening here is that what if what in fact appears to be at first a policy that would be designed to be biased against already marginalized workers actually enables them to perhaps break a prevailing stereotype by showing who's really taking drugs at work. Um, just the same way drug testing of welfare recipients had shown incredibly low rates of drug use among welfare beneficiaries, contrary to popular suspicion. Uh, maybe the same is going on for drug tests. Nobody really knows, but sadly, it should not take an invasive, irrational testing regime to dispel negative myths about um, drug use among certain kinds of workers. So what does drug testing do? It separates workers willing to put up with authoritarian bullcrap at work, nonsensical irrational biases of corporate America, and the cultural hegemony of a drug policy not rooted in science or reason. It doesn't really tell you how qualified someone is to work on the job. And it's just one of many aspects of workplace absurdity that we put up with every day. It's worth asking ourselves whether or not our work lives are really worth it. Sadly, often uh, we need to do what we need to do to keep the job, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't question the things that we do simply to earn a living. And that's all for Belabored this week. Catch us in another two weeks. If you have a question, comment, story, idea, complaint about your boss, an instance of workplace discrimination you want to let us know about, or maybe you're organizing a union on your college campus, get in touch at hashtag belabored on Twitter, or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit DescentMagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.